suppose we'll hear stories about addiction. We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too. Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, the podcast that brings you stories from both the dark side and the light side of addiction and recovery. And this season, season three, has been dedicated entirely to artists in recovery. Today is our last recording of the season three, and therefore the last recording in season three that I'm honored to do with my co-host, Mariana Casagranda. And it's been such a joy to work with you, Mariana. Thank you, Nancy. And it has been what an experience it's been. It's been so great. I've learned a lot and I've just enjoyed it as well. Um, I was very grateful to be included in this session and and this whole season's been fantastic. Well, and and working with you has been, like I said, just such a joy that it's easy and effortless. And um, I keep learning more every time that I talk to you. And so it's, it's juicy. And mm-hmm. today's show, I would like to focus on something I learned about while listening to a book summary on Blinkist app while working out at the gym. And the author of this book was talking about that most artists had what they call an inciting event that pulled them into the art world. And what I I will share my own inciting event that came to me later while I was walking my dog in a sanctuary. Um, However, I want to talk about what this whole idea of inciting event is and to compare it to a precipitating event, which is something that I've asked almost every person that I have interviewed on Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores is what was the precipitating event that brought you into recovery? Or what was the camel that broke the 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 camel that brought broke the straws back right what was the straw that broke the camel's back that um stopped the succession of relapses and and brought you to what is commonly referred to as your bottom in recovery you know and I love the saying that you don't have to go all the way down the elevator. You can stop at any floor or stop and you've hit your bottom when you choose to stop digging. I love that one. <laughs> and I also love the term gift of desperation. When did you get to uh, reach out to a higher power to God, that acronym, the gift of desperation? When was it bad enough? So an inciting event is almost the exact opposite. It's like, what gave that spark that said, oh, I got to be an artist. And for me, that inciting event came in sixth grade when I was 12 years old. And my teacher, Mrs. Moore, I remember her name, decided to turn the entire classroom into an Egyptian tomb. And 
I got to work in the art room on these floor-to-ceiling pieces of art that showed different Egyptian gods or goddesses. Uh, I remember one that I worked on had a bird's head on a person's body. And you're, you're shaking your head. People that are listening can't see that. But do you know what god that is? I'll look it up. I do know that god, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. and I loved working with the tempera paints, and I loved working really big. And then she, you know, she put these multiple paintings all around, and we did the columns, and you know, we turned the entire room. We covered up the the windows, and we made floor tiles and. I know there was one um, pyramid made out of sugar cubes in the center of the room, you know, on a pedestal. And there, she just transformed this whole room and I was transformed. And that's when I made a decision that I want to be an artist when I grow up. Mm. This is what I want to do. And I just had forgotten that entire event until I was listening to this Blinkist book summary while working out in the gym. So I just love it. And and I love the the contrast with the precipitating event that gets one to um, give up the addiction compared to what was the inciting event that causes a person that spark, that love, that passion for, it could be any activity. Um, for me, it was art and, you know, and it didn't become painting for me. I'm a an illustrator and a fiber artist. It was about the color. I think that really stayed. And as you know, my interest in metaphysics and um, and Egypt, and for those of you that don't know, Mariana has been to Egypt and studied the goddess traditions in the land where it all took place, however many millennium ago. Mm. Well, so the reference to the god, um, it was Horus. If the head of the bird was a falcon, mm-hmm. uh, it would have been Toth if it was an ibis. Um, so the alchemy between nature and human beings was acknowledged that all humans have an animal sacred nature within themselves. And, um, and so the embodiment of those gods as represented by, for instance, the falcon, um, was the part that a pharaoh would go through a ceremony inside one of the temples before they would appear before the crowds as the god. They had to go through a cleansing ritual, a changing of their garments. There was a whole sequence of events that had to be happening before then the king became the god and the god would step out onto the platform and appear before all of the people. So it was very dramatic. It was very elaborate. And there was a very uh, specific sequence of spiritual events that had to happen. And the sequence of events never changed, regardless of whatever ceremony or whatever reason um, the pharaoh was or the king was going to step uh, up to the to the podium, if you will. Um, but I actually have pictures of myself standing next to Horus outside of one of the temples. Um, what a powerful experience, Nancy, to have as a young child to transform an entire room into an Egyptian tomb. I was, I'm, my head was spinning. I'm like, wow, um, how powerful is that? Um, and I love this. I, I love this um, idea of the inciting event. And I'm thinking, I'm, my head is, my 
my wheels are turning trying to think if there was a pivotal event for me around that about being an artist. Um, I don't know if there was. I, I knew that I loved drawing and I loved the art. And I think that became much more profound for me or important for me as I went through um, my older elementary school and then into high school. High school was when I finally gave it some roots. And it was the first place where I had adults in the art world formally acknowledging that I had some some talent of some sort um, and that there was encouragement to follow that intuitive thread and to create art and I began to experience also what you were talking about the experience of being a maker of having something come through the realm of ideas into the body into the excitement and enthusiasm and then come literally out of our hands and be birthed one way or another and the transformation of an entire room is a little hard to ignore if you know what i mean <laughs> it's one thing to have it on an eight by ten piece of paper or whatever but it's a whole other experience to walk into an entire transformed you know space like that wow um and I flashed as you were talking to the first temple I visited in Egypt, and I could put my hands on the wall at long last, after longing for this for decades, I could finally touch some hieroglyphics that were created by someone so long ago. And it was, it was really a powerful experience. Every temple I had to put my hands on, everything. I was putting my hands on as much as I could. And yeah, it was transformative in many ways. And it was, there's something so luminescent about being part of that artistry, part of that lineage that goes beyond words. And I'm not sure many artists really need to put words to it, frankly. It's something we know. It's not logical. It's something our senses and our very hearts recognize in an instant. And sometimes it comes as strongly as yours did, and sometimes it comes in quietly, but it comes. A couple of things you you've given me to think about is one is a ritual that I learned from a woman that taught beadworking on feathers. And she taught us the Native American beadworking method where we sat on a red blanket, we got up in one direction, we always blessed our hands. And when we started working and putting in an odd bead to acknowledge that nothing was perfect and all these wonderful parts of ritual to do this beadworking. And I remember asking her if she always did her beadworking the uh, Native American way. And she said, no, I most often do my beading the American TV way. <laughs> I sit in front of the television do it. And I was like, oh, you know, that gave me great relief. But I remember one of the prayers from that experience, that workshop, which was to bless your hands, usually in ocean water, and to say, spirit, help me transform your spirit into form through these hands. And I love that because I remember having a conversation with Michael Waterman, a, an oil painter, about feeling frustrated myself that I couldn't get the image as well as I saw it in my mind onto the canvas. And he said, no, what you do is better because the spirit is giving you this image, but the spirit 
doesn't have hands and can't put it into form. And I thought about the combination of those two rituals and his acknowledgement that my work is better than what I can see or imagine in my mind, which I think of as influx. Um, you know, it's it's spirit coming into me is where that imagination comes from. And when you get these different ideas and and then, you know, even how it might come together. I'm just thinking about the current piece of work that I'm working on. And it, it came through a dream with one, one slice. My brother calls them slices. Like One slice from heaven came in where I, I dreamt a series of words of fish under resin was what I woke up thinking of. Well, that led in meditation to an image of fish under ice and these skaters above the ice and then uh, roots on the earth below the ice, and then a child riding a giant turtle in the underworld with the reins in her hands. And I see the image almost column-like, um, like a totem pole. And I've begun to work that in fabric and thread. And you know, it's like, but when the things come and, and I thought, but it wasn't fish under ice. That was what the image looked like, but the words were fish under resin. And then I thought about encaustic, which isn't something that I've, it's not a medium that I've personally worked with. And then another artist suggested, well, why don't you do a collaboration with somebody that does encaustic? And, you know, it's just like, that's the kind of, all of it is inciting events, like how one spills over to another and another. And and I feel like it is spirit coming through the channel of the artist and the tools and the hands and what we use to make it, to create it out of form. One of the things that's so um, helpful in receiving imagery is that we're already primed for intuition. We may not call it that. We may call it a gut instinct. We may call it whatever we call it for the sake of blending in with, you know, conventional people. But the reality is that poets and musicians and artists and all people who walk the outside circle of society have already been gifted with intuition. And whether they've been shamed, judged, or whether they themselves have just simply not known what to do with it. Um, when you think about the downloading of those images to you, in, in the sequence, you know, as you said, it was in a column and you were very clear about the layering, you know, the layering of the images. That doesn't make any sense, which is perfect because then you know it's juicy. It has nothing to do with the mind and the logical and the rational. And it's it's emotional. It's, you know, it's irrational, which means it's very powerful. And it's archetypal imagery. The turtle is the earth. I mean, that's been a Native American image across many cultures and among other things. And so are fish and so is water. And all of those elements are, you know, celebrated in a vast amount of, you know, uh, accumulated uh, archetypal books and, and images around the world by artists. But underneath all that, if, if one does not have the capacity to at least open the door to having that kind of sensitivity and intuition capacity and receptivity, there's not a container enough for spirit there. It's going to be a struggle. Whereas if you already walk on the outside, what else have you got to lose? Nothing. And then you just, it's this joyous thing like, oh, here's some more. And if you think about it, vision is so important in creating anything, a building, a plan, 
uh, a plan for life, uh, a creative project. You've got to have something to begin with. And where does that something come from? And it's not like you go to the dictionary and go under the I for image and go, well, let's see what's here. No, it's your personal uh, ex set of experiences. And for me, both past life and current that can come in and can appear and can uh, create in you an interest and an investigation and a curiosity and a, and a yes in your body. Yes, this is what I need to do next. Done, you know? And that intuitive process is very difficult to put in words. It's not something you can measure. It just is. And we're blessed with it. And that's why we get all these really interesting, weird things. We're, we're, we're antenna for the weird. It's a beautiful thing. Not everybody gets to be on board though, right? And that's okay. But here we are. You have to have courage to be that different. I love that segue to the courage to be different. I think that that's, you know, one of the things that I've always said and learned and then repeated, nothing is unique to me, is about artists, well, not about artists, about addicts being um, of a highly intelligent and at the same time, coupled with a very sensitive nervous system, and I think highly creative. And of all the people in all different industries, the artist has one of the uh, loudest inner critic, um, a great vulnerability to, uh, I was talking to Kelly, one of the owners at Cove Street Arts about the vulnerability of being an artist and, and being out there with your artwork. It's about being naked. You know, it's like, it's putting that innermost self out to the world to be seen. And we don't all have that courage. And I, um, I wanted to share today uh, a recent event in my art life, which is that I, um, I've been working on a series of seven quilts, and I had finished the seventh quilt. Part of the project with each quilt, they are then um, quilted by a long armist. So she works with this machine that's the length of a regular room, like a 14-foot machine that um, right, stitches, the quilting, and it's computerized. And I was really thrilled with this very last quilt in the series to have come up with a way, work with a designer so that I could make a digital file of my own design for the actual stitching of the quilting. So the image on this art quilt and I'm working in uh, illustration in thread. So black thread on white cotton. And then I make this really bold and vibrant, colorful art quilt. And then I applique the, the black and white imagery on top of the color. And the image on this last quilt is of a woman straddled over a penis that's like four or five feet tall. <laughs> and the ejaculate is streams of ribbon with quilting squares and the um, quilts, the quilt squares in the background are traditional blocks, although done with batiks that are so bright that and vibrant that it's really not traditional. And they're with uh, the, the lines in between are black and white. And up where the ejaculate is coming out of the top of the penis, the block on that side of the quilt bursts apart and starts to come into smaller and smaller boxes and pieces. It's just, and I had 
two working titles. Uh, the first one was female ejaculation, just talking about all the quilts are about empowering women. And um, and then the second working title was uh, Chaos Out of Order. And I brought the back of the quilt and the batting and the front of the quilt to the long armist. And we made a special point when I was there of tagging it so she knew what right what side was right side up. And when I was finishing the binding, which goes all around the quilt and is hand done, I finish it, I laid it out on the table so that I can start to applique the, the image. And I realized that the back of the quilt was quilted upside down. And to make matters worse, not only is there an image I used three materials, the black and white, uh, the back is in almost entirely black and white, except for some boxes that break apart in the center. Um, and the material, two of the three materials are use, use words, like their repeated words make up the material. So all the words are upside down. And I was so frustrated and, and frankly angry at the beginning until I thought about it. The woman that has been doing my long arm quilting work is um, battling pancreatic cancer. And she has taught her daughter everything with the quilt, the long arm quilting, uh, so that she can keep the business going while she's going through chemo treatments and radiation and surgery, all the rest of it. And it's not frankly going well. And I thought, no, that you're not, you're not going to say anything at all um, to them. And, uh, you know, I thought about even asking for my money back because it's expensive to have things quilted for you. And I thought they need the money a lot more than I do right now. And having that money back will not change it. It's not something that can be undone or redone. It, it would destroy all the materials to take out those threads. And then I was talking to someone else, um, another artist, about the names, that the titles that I was playing with. And she said, why don't you name the back? And the front can be chaos out of order, and the back can be the world upside down. <laughs> and all of a sudden, when she said that, I thought, I like it. So something that had really irritated me and felt like a failure and a failure of a year's worth of work. It's a lot of work that goes into finishing an art quilt of this size and magnitude and was ruined. And it wasn't ruined at all. And it's like spirit added its own voice. And I thought there are two quilts out of the seven in the series that have images on both the front and the back. And I have never seen a quilt name for the front of the quilt and the back of the quilt, which I intend to do now for both of these <laughs> when they're exhibited. And I, it's just, it became something that was exciting. Wow. I love that story. That is so, it, I think about the relationship between spirit and the artist. And, you know, once the artist gets the image, they run with it, right? And they get pretty much control over the whole process because again they're in human form so they get to ride all of that and to have spirit come back and just do a little something something i think sounds really amazing and um yeah i like that reverse imagery a lot too i think that's it more intriguing and um what an interesting thing to name the back and the front like such an innovative piece i like that 
that that may lead to a lot of other pieces like that too who knows pretty interesting huh i don't think i've ever seen i'm just thinking i don't think i've ever seen a quilt that had uh you know the back and the front acknowledged that way um and the reverse imagery is unsettling it's disturbing it doesn't feel quote unquote right you know it's upside down and we, you know in many ways so are artists we're upside down well and all the words in that fabric are like create um sculptor sculpt um you know they're they're words about art art and so you'll have to like tip your head upside down and figure out what they're saying. <laughs> I think it's really fun. Now, now I've really embraced the whole thing. And as you said, it's almost like um, the spirit had a voice in it too. Not not just from the beginning, but through the process. And, and what a way to complete a series, which is also our completing our season three with this show. You know, it's just kind of fun, like uh, to our audience, who knows what might be coming next? Indeed, indeed. That is the, that's the big question with creative energy in the forefront, you know? I was thinking about the tarot card of the hanged one, where the images of the person who is hanging upside down from a branch in a tree being hung, and you would think it would be extremely uncomfortable, and yet this chap, so to speak, uh, in the writer deck at any rate, is very comfortable. And the analogy and the metaphysical meaning to that is, is that for this period of time, your consciousness, such as you know it, is going to get reversed. There is going to be a massive change in the way that you perceive and think about things on purpose because your consciousness needs to be changed in some form and has become perhaps too crystallized and too uh, rigid in some aspect. And so being held in reverse allows you to see things you would not normally see, experience things you would not normally experience that way. And when you get back to perhaps a more vertical stance in the world or more ordinary, everything is changed as a result of what you have experienced in that other state. So there's transcendence, surrender, acceptance, and a very clear understanding that you are not in charge of how long this takes, but that there's a gift at the end of the experience because of the process of what you have to go through. Um, and very similar to what you did. I mean, the anger sounds perfectly reasonable, the, the surprise, the what happened here, and then the angst over all the time you spent, Nancy, over that specifically, the money, you know, everything. Well, there was a point too at, during that time when I thought about when I go back to have another quilt worked on, I might mention something. Uh, there was another, it's not really a problem. Um, when I did the digital file of my own design, my design was this repeating penis, right? Like they're, they're repeating and and when I uh, went out to speak to the long armist, she said, um, how large do you want the penises to be? And I said, oh, kind of regular size, you know, and she said, by a, a man's estimation or a woman's, you know, which I just thought was funny. And then when I went to pick it up in the in the area of the quilt where the um, if my own imagery was going to be applied on, it was left uh, with just white fabric, so you could see the stitching where the rest of it because I had it stitched in a flesh color thread too. So it's you know all the back you you can 
tell if you're really looking to see what the the imagery is, but you have to know kind of what it is to look for it. But on here on the white, it was very um, easy to see. And she had done the penises like a foot long and, you know, and, and wider. And I was like, you know, your idea of normal size is not what I would think of as normal size. And she said, oh, actually, the imagery, because you have to uh, retrack your thread, the machine does, it kept distorting it unless I did it this size. This size was the most um, uniform. So I was just cracking up at the whole idea of how much was outside of my control. And I want to share something that I've always used as a teaching moment with the hanged one in Tarot, which is a story about the magician Merlin and how he was brought into the king's court and asked to divine the death of a young maiden who was brought before him. And, or I think he said a young page first, because Merlin said, um, this young man is going to grow up to be a very old man. He's going to walk off a cliff and die, right? And then the king or the courtier took the young page and dressed him as a young maiden. And the same person brought in front of Merlin and said, how is this person going to die? And Merlin said, that person is going to hang to death. And um, the king brought the page back again and dressed him up as an old man and brought him in front of Merlin and said, how is this old man going to die? And Merlin said, he's going to drown. Well, then they, they was the king said, you're just full of it and and banned him from the court and uh and the young page grew up to be a very old man walked off a cliff got hung up in a vine and hung with his head underwater in the stream which is in very many of the cards the way the uh, hanged one is depicted and the story was just about intuition and surrender and not knowing um, what will happen. That's cool. I like that. Well, and I yeah. loved your interpretation of going with the reversal, which I don't, when I'm reading Tarot, I don't think of reversed meanings as much as resistance, mm -hmm. uh, and that you have to look at things differently. Right, right. Yeah. And the willingness to be able to look at things differently without being coerced or forced, but because it's you're in a place where you do that naturally or intuitively. Which reminds me, you you did something special with the word irrational. Were you aware of that? What? No, I don't think so. What was oh, that? Okay. Well, it, yeah. you said it in a different way, like irrational or something like, and I was yeah. thinking, yeah. oh, is there an etymology to that or something like, like the word weird, meaning, you know, um, the well of the... Um, one of the three Norns that was uh, looking at the divining the future in the well. Mm -hmm. And right. and that, that right. was called weird, or I think that's part of where that word even comes from in, in mm -hmm. Norse myth mythology. So yeah. I, yeah. I like to be called weird. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's quite the moniker these days, I think. Uh, well, and it's funny because uh, as you have, uh, you know, inferred, the origin of words, depending on, you know, where you are coming at from, because there's, there, there are many words that were used in pagan days that are used very differently today, etc. And the meanings and origins of those things are different. Um, 
And there's so much of that in a number of things across history. Um, so it is good to kind of be inquisitive about that. You're right. And no, I, I, I elongated it for whatever reason. I just, mm -hmm. I like the word and I like it because I have been so oriented to being practical and logical and rational. You know, there's a part of my brain that really loves to operate from that because there's a sense of implied security in that I can assure myself that I'm smart enough to figure out X, Y, and Z, um, all delusional. And then the irrational and the illogical and the, the emotional is where all the juicy imaginative things are. And it's often portrayed as um, something you don't want to get near. It's the, it's the scary stuff. It's the stuff of the dark. It's the stuff of the weird, you know? And you're right. In, in ancient days, there was a total acknowledgement of the ancestors and the natural world and the nature within us. There was no need to dominate or be, you know, there was none of that. And it was uh, yes, or yesterday or the day before I was listening to NPR, just happened to press the button on my, you know, my car. And they were talking about this bird that would respond to whistles in a particular part of the world when the hunters went out for honey. And this bird would show up and they'd follow the bird. This was a natural relationship that had been built over centuries. And the bird would stop flying. It would land on a branch. And that was the tree where the honey was in the tree. And so these native peoples would get this catch of honey. The bird would win because it could get the wax, which it loved. People would get the honey, which was nutritionally very valuable. So this was happening in different parts of the world with different sounds from people creating sounds, letting the birds know that they were out hunting honey, and the birds would show them where it was. Now, if you think about that, and that's been in place for centuries, it, it reminded me of how much we have lost in the industrialization process that in in not just in looking for food or food sources but the relationship between human beings and the world of animals and insects and birds were very much a dynamic that both relied on each other for food and for sustenance and for relationship. And it was not unusual, you know, to have that. Um, and I think what artists can mimic in that way, if you will, is a relationship like that with spirit. And so some of the more powerful artistry has these images that are very primitive and very simple, but they're, they're, they are very empowered because they're ancient, you know? I do. <laughs> I do know, and I love it. And I, I realized that the beginning of that word irrational is almost irate. You know, I was thinking back to, uh, again, the, the story of this particular quilt and how when I thought about, you know, talking to them when I brought another quilt out there, I also thought, but I'm never going to quilt again. <laughs> like, you know, like uh, this was a, a year's worth of work, you know, like I'm never, I'm never doing that again. And I do think that the fiber art that I'm doing now is going to take another direction. Um, it may not be like these quilts were in my own thoughts were to be reproduced so that women who needed that empowerment could literally sleep under these empowering images. And I, uh, I really like that idea. Who, who knows what 
might materialize from that. Um, I'm looking now for places to exhibit it, uh, which are likely to be more university or um, museum than a gallery, for instance, that's more interested in in selling art to, you know, for the sake Mm -hmm. of the gallery as well as the artist. So Mm -hmm. Um, what else came up for you just as we wind up from this whole season, from the artists that we've talked to, the many recordings that you listened to? I was reflecting on that earlier and realizing how much uh, I felt a part of this, this community of people who, for one reason or another, had to go through uh, a, you know, a, a grinding of dealing with all of the falling apart that happens when one succumbs to addiction, when one has to go through uh, such difficulty. And what I w- what was filtering off for me, it, it, hopefully this will make some sort of sense, is that between, for me, between all the different addictions that I had to experience, all of them served a purpose in cleaving me off from a number of things and, and causing in me uh, some deep physical, mental, emotional, psychic, spiritual breaks, some fracturing. And part of that I think was a necessary process to have me begin to understand that these dependencies weren't what I was looking for, that I was looking for something far more deep and far more resilient and powerful. But these were they these were necessary stages. And in the search for a union, if you will, that was ultimate, that was the highest of the high and the best of the best was really not going to happen by getting high, if you know what I mean, okay? That what it was meant to do was show me where I was stuck with all these dependencies, where I was limiting myself, where I was um, caught up in the disease itself. Because, you know, alcoholism, all of these things have deep roots and they cause a number of things to happen across the family and across individuals as a whole anyway. And I was thinking about that for me, faith, trust, surrender were things that were under exercised when I was in the addictive space. And what I was looking for was more fantasy than reality. And coming into recovery, what began to be very clear was that the reality was far more powerful and far more promising and creative and clearer than I had ever suspected. The pain of being in the addictive piece prepared me for, in many ways, the pain of being different the pain of always being different or unique than others in some way or another. And I'm grateful for the for that because, I don't know, my skin is thicker perhaps, or perhaps I have understood some of the despair that other people have experienced in other ways. And the crisis of belief, the crisis of consciousness, the um, a, a capacity to uh, face transformation, you know, face one's uh, limitations. All those are very powerful lessons. They came in a, you know, strange set of ways. Um, And ultimately to understand that fear and resistance and um, 
ignorance did not serve me. And so a lot of things that didn't serve me had to be removed. And this was part of the process. I could no longer align myself with my family of choice because that was full of the ism. I needed to, to have, as we say sometimes, the buck stops with me. It had to stop with me. And generationally, I carried the residue of many generations of pain. And I feel um, pretty, pretty good about not having to carry that further. I don't know about other people in my family, but for me, the cost of becoming sober and abstinent and clean and clear has has been fine. It's been well worth it. It really has. I've learned a whole new language, a whole new kind of life, and a whole new way to be who I'm supposed to be. So the shedding and the surrender were key. And come to find out um, that the capacity I have is a gift, and I can continue to work with that. And it keeps going up in my life in very strange ways and by strange experiences. And so I continue to get freed up of all of that conditioning. And that is what I believe, you know, is what creates um, the individual at long last and the true self. You know, how we get our coins that say, to your own self, be true, right? Mm -hmm. Be true to yourself. And you have to know who you are in order to do that. I think there, you know, when I reflect on this season and I think about uh, starting with Russ Coleman, a, a stone sculptor, and then um, interviewing a musician and pop artist and Eric Howell and a glass blower and David Jacobson and my sister, who's a, a poet and photographer of erupting volcanoes, you know, like, and all the shows that we've done together this season, I, I think there is so much that could be said for the, the crucible you know, going through uh, the crucible and how we, what great return on investment we have in this investing in recovery and investing in ourselves. And as you said, being true to your own self, be true. I know that many artists struggle with the, will I still be creative if I'm sober? You know, will I be in touch with that muse? And what I have to say and what I've experienced in all the interviews this season is yes, and even more so. And you'll feel really good about what you do create and who you are and who you create. So, and it's in that crucible, become transformed. Yeah. Our entire language changes. Our entire way of seeing things changes mm -hmm. and continues to change because that is part of the reality, the evolving thing. You know, we have an evolving state of being. We're not fixed. We're not rigid. We're not small anymore. And we can walk amongst others and be very quiet and powerful in what we are and who we are. And it, it's fine. You know, that's a powerful place to be, to be so centered in your skin and so aware of being uh, a catalyst for inspiration, wherever it comes, however it comes, that you're a willing recipient is a really lovely, lovely place to be. So I think this is probably one of our longest episodes oh, today. Yes, probably, yeah. <laughs> and I just want to ask you, Mariana, for people that want to be stay in touch with you or have a reading with you. I, I think that's something that we need to let people know about. And um, 
And if you have a desire to hear more from us, I know we might look at how we would continue to um, speak to our audience. It might not be through liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. There's something quite mystical and magical in working with you, Mariana. I hope that it doesn't end here. Um, and so let people, our listeners know how they can be in touch with you. Thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, if you are interested, please uh, visit my website, which is marianacasagranda.com. And on that site will be some descriptions of some of the services I offer. Um, I would just say, simply email me or you can certainly call me uh, with any questions. I am more than happy to talk to you. And uh, yes, the uh, charts are evolutionary astrology and um, I am more than happy to serve um, your soul and to uh, give you some information about past life and current life uh, so, no, thank you. You have served my soul this season <laughs> many times. So including today with that whole idea of reversal, I, I really love it. And uh, I was thinking today about how many times dreams have influenced my art. And that is something current work of mine, I'm looking at putting together a dream and art group. And uh, I've been working on a dreams ebook that will, you know, be something on my website. So keep looking at nancyadair.com. That's Nancy with an I, N-A-N-C-I-A-D-A-I-R.com. And especially in the section called um, free stuff. <laughs> Go look there. There's uh, some meditations and there'll be more about dreams in the future. So thank you again, Mariana. Thank you for all our listeners. And I'm open to any feedback and certainly um, subscribe and put a good rating in there for liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy. And thank you for this delightful season. And to all the participating artists in recovery out there, keep keep getting more and more work out into the world. We all need it and we appreciate it. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator Nancy Adair. 